Uh, Richard B. Hayes. I don't know if anyone, any of you have heard of... Have people announced this to you? Yeah. So you know all about it. Okay. Well, you'll definitely want to... Um, well, I guess you didn't hear this from me about skipping class, but if ever there were a reason... Um, Anyway, this is a very well-known New Testament scholar who has, um, uh, I think, some uh, incredible insights about the writings of Paul. Uh, we're actually going to touch on one of his big, um, well, I don't want to say theories, but I think uh, very insightful understandings about the writing of Paul um, here next Friday morning. The Bible and the story of God's faithfulness. Uh, I think many interpret the writings of Paul predominantly as a, a legal understanding of things. And his title here kind of gives you an understanding that Paul here, as he understands it, describes God's goodness, God's trustworthiness, God's faithfulness. And uh, some of these phrases uh, can be understood in two different ways here in the writings of Paul. So I'd really encourage you to attend that one. Well, that probably conflicts with something, doesn't it? But anyway, you guys can decide. And then um, next Thursday night... Four or Five Ways How Not to Read the Bible. That sounds like a good title. And then uh, All Day Friday, really. The Bible and Nonviolent Reconciliation. The Bible and Future Hope. So I think these will be um, well worthwhile. And I understand they'll be recorded. So if you miss them, hopefully we can uh, get some of those recordings. So today we're going to go on. I know I said we'd get to the flood, but um, there just seemed other things that I wanted to talk about. So we're still in Genesis 3 and 4. All right, let's pray as we begin. Father, we know these very early stories in the Bible are critical to our understanding of everything that has gone on since. So please open our eyes to new insights and understandings. Help us to see what this uh, split that uh, you seem to create between uh, the human race and Satan. Help us to understand that better. Amen. So I want to discuss here the words here. We discussed last time what was said at the tree and why Satan's words to Eve were so destructive as she led Eve to believe that God was restrictive of her freedom. Uh, she led Eve to believe that um, God was untrustworthy, that God had lied to her, that God selfishly tried to keep her from something that would have been for her own good. And so we said that eating the fruit was really uh, symbolized ingesting the lies, that she agreed with Satan. She ate the fruit. Okay, and then uh, significant here, and maybe one thing we didn't emphasize uh, enough, you know, what went wrong with Satan? Well, remember the two Bible studies ago, we read in Ezekiel and Isaiah, pride, selfishness, the desire to be worshipped as God. And remember that last temptation to Eve, you will be like God. It was really also um, pride and a selfish desire to be more elevated that uh, led to Eve ingesting the fruit. But then we have these interesting words. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And it's just, just involve a, a curse toward uh, snakes, or is there something uh, more significant here? Now, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And we could spend a long time talking about uh, this whole concept. Uh, what does it mean to have a bruised head or heel? And uh, we're going to focus on something else, but just one thing I find interesting. Of course, we associate the death of Jesus uh, many times, described as defeating Satan at the cross. 
And we need to explain what that means. But I also find this interesting. If we read into Romans here, Paul would say, decades after the cross, and God, our source of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay, um, under your feet. I mean, we have a role to play in defeating Satan. And of course, uh, what is the church, uh, the body of Christ? And it would appear that there is uh, still work to be done. And we'll have to consider what else, how else is Satan defeated? How are we involved in defeating Satan? Interesting to think about. But I want to come back here and talk about this enmity. I put a more uh, traditional translation, because most of us are used to coming out of the King James, enmity. Uh, what does that mean? And between your offspring and her offspring, uh, does Satan have children that um, are competing down through the generations? What does that mean? Well, remember Jesus came, God in human form, and he said to these very self-righteous people, you are the children of your father, the devil, and you want to follow your father's desires. So I think the, the sense here would be those who agree with Satan, those who are on his side, though these people would say, no, we're on God's side. They really weren't. Okay, that there was this, was there not incredible animosity between Jesus and the religious people in that time? And he said, you are of your father, the devil. And of course, they were right back at him. Uh, just a few verses later, were we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon in you? And, uh, you know, how, how twisted does the mind have to be that you could look at God in human form and say, you have a demon? Okay, that says they really had things uh, backwards. And, um, of course, this separation in uh, Genesis chapter 4. Uh, first child, Cain, kills Abel. And so the separation is, is very obvious, and you could give dozens and dozens of examples throughout the Bible. And I like the interpretation here of um, what happened with Cain here in 1 John. We must not be like Cain. He belonged to the evil one. Okay, again, and he murdered his own brother Abel. Why did Cain murder him? Because the things he himself did were wrong, and the things his brother did were right. So there is this animosity, this very intense conflict between two sides in this great controversy, and we are all involved, whether we want to or not, in choosing which side we will um, participate in. Okay, but is there more to it than that? Let's look at some other translations of this enmity. In the New Living, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. Or other translations, I will make or create that you and the woman hate each other. Okay, now, is this uh, just a declaration of fact? There are going to be two sides? Or did God actually intervene in some way and do something? This uh, creating uh, enmity. Well, I'd like to suggest that it is more than just a statement of there are going to be two sides. That God actually did something um, that's described here that was beneficial for the human race. So maybe we could consider it this way. Um, seems to me that Adam and Eve really sided with Satan. They ate the fruit, God comes into the garden, and are they afraid of that snake, the serpent, or are they afraid of God? They're afraid of God. They're hiding in the bushes. And I think the entire human race would have just joined forces with Satan, with all of his angels that we talked about, Revelation uh, described, and uh, in this rebellion against God. And I think God intervened. He did something. And maybe we could see it this way. 
Adam and Eve uh, were confused. They didn't understand. They believed lies about God. And let's just imagine that this ocean here is uh, just filled with sharks. We can see the shark fins up. Uh, any of us would look at this and say, you know, the last thing in the world we're going to do is swim in that ocean. Very dangerous. Okay, but imagine Adam and Eve here in this situation. Okay, they've eaten the fruit, they've uh, gone in the wrong direction, and maybe in their uh, distorted, uh, deluded mind they don't understand that this side is uh, devastating and that going this direction is uh, incredibly harmful. And their eyes are not open to see the sharks, to see the danger of the other side. And so I think God did something to help them see, to help them understand. And any of you that have read Mere Christianity know that the first several chapters of this book, and it would seem when C.S. Lewis went from an atheist to a Christian, uh, this was a major understanding for him. And that is this, uh, this internal sense that we all seem to have of right and wrong. And we wouldn't all agree necessarily on every detail. But why is it that we all seem to agree that is wrong, that is bad, and that is good? And so I'll just read... Uh, just some excerpts here from the first few chapters. And he would say, Well, if any of you will take the trouble to compare the moral teachings of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five, Every culture would agree, that's wrong, that's bad. And he said, men have differed as regards to what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only to your own family or to your fellow countrymen, or everyone. But they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they've always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. And he would say, there are two odd things about the human race. First, that they are haunted by the idea of a sort of behavior they ought to practice, what you might call fair play, or decency, or morality, or the law of nature. And then he would rightly observe, but second, they don't do it. Okay, we all agree there is this right and wrong, but by and large, uh, we don't follow that. Um, some not very often, and uh, I think we'd all admit we don't do these things we agree are wrong on occasion. And so finally he'd say, well, if we ask, why ought I to be unselfish? And you reply, well, because it's good for society. We may then ask, well, why should I care what's good for society, except when it happens to pay me personally? And then you will have to say, well, because you ought to be unselfish, which simply brings us back to where we started. All you are really saying is that decent behavior is decent behavior. You should have said just as much if you had stopped at the statement, men ought to be unselfish. Why do we all agree that people ought to be that way? This rule of right and wrong, or law of human nature, or whatever you call it, must somehow or other be a real thing, a thing that is really there, not made up by ourselves. It begins to look as if we shall have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality, that there is something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's behavior, and yet quite definitely real, a real law which none of us made, but which we find pressing on us. 
Maybe I'll give a few examples of this. Maybe this is an easy one. I kind of like this statue here of a man reaching out to trip someone else. But um, imagine here that just a few uh, moments ago that I happened to collide with one of you accidentally and uh, knocked you over. Maybe you really skinned your elbow up in the, in the collision. You know, but it was an accident, and I said, I'm sorry, and uh, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal. You wouldn't, uh, I hope, be upset at me over the collision. But imagine I had gone out of my way and deceptively and really tried to trip you and uh, hurt you. But I, I didn't succeed. I missed your foot. Now, you, you wouldn't be upset if we accidentally bumped into each other, but if I maliciously tried to hurt you, even though I didn't succeed, that's the one that would upset you. Okay, why? Because that's morally wrong behavior. We'd all agree that's not right to try to hurt someone. But yet in the case where it was an accident, you really were hurt. But you're not upset about that. Well, maybe not, that one's not convincing, but let's uh, make it real here. We have Indian food out, and sometimes, you know, we run out of food. Okay, now imagine you're in line, and you see, boy, it's dwindling down. There isn't a lot left. And maybe the dish that you really like, you see, well, maybe two servings left. It's getting down there. And so you quickly step in front of three of your classmates and you uh, not only get a spoonful or two, but you just heap up the plate. You finish it off. And uh, now, and then imagine you run in here. Would you, would you kind of laugh to your classmate? You know, I snuck ahead. I got the whole thing. got the whole plate. Um, would people generally agree that, um, well, sure. I mean, isn't that uh, survival of the fittest? Isn't that what we're based on? You get what... Uh, should be yours, you're taking care of self, isn't that how we all came to be? Okay, why would we all agree that that sort of behavior is not right? We all say it's not right, well, what makes it not right? Okay, why shouldn't it be okay to do things like that? Why do we have this uh, sense that uh, acting selfishly like that is, is not appropriate? And uh, my wife, uh, Dorothy, I thought had a good example. Why should we take care of uh, handicapped children? Uh, the severely mentally retarded? Does it benefit society uh, or the perpetuation of the race? Uh, why would we all agree that this is a very noble and good thing to do? Okay, what gives us that sense that um, this is right and this is wrong? And so what I'm suggesting here is that the separation, God opened the eyes of Adam and Eve to see good and evil and gave them the ability to choose between the two. So we could just make a list here of long things that I think we'd all look at this list and everyone would agree, that's bad. Is pride ever something that uh, is appreciated? Or selfishness? Or cruelty? Child abuse? Cheating? If you cheated on a test, would, uh, would anyone slap you on the back and say, oh, you really got away with it, good job. We'd all agree, I hope, that um, that's uh, very poor behavior. Or if you're walking home, maybe you study late tonight. Uh, let's say you're a, a man in the class here, and you, down a, maybe a dark alley, you hear a woman calling for help. And maybe it's a little scary, so you run home. And would you tell your roommate, I uh, had a scary situation, but I saved myself. And uh, would anyone uh, think that that's good behavior? We'd all agree, cowardice is not something that any society appreciates. We all agree that's wrong. Why? Or gossip, or slander, or stealing. Okay, these are universally accepted to be wrong. Why do we have this uh, internal sense of all of these things? Or even in movies. I mean, it is amazing 
Movie after movie after movie. Who is the bad person? The bad person is always angry, cruel, arrogant, selfish. Hey, the good person usually has polar opposite features, or frequently. And uh, is the movie industry trying to... Uh, where, where does this sense come from? This conversation here between Lord Sidious and uh, Anakin Skywalker was very interesting because... Uh, I don't know if you... Uh, I'm sure most of you have seen this, but um, where... Um, remember the conversation where Skywalker said, well, the, uh, the Jedi are selfless. And what are the Sith known for? For being supremely selfish and using power to selfishly get more and more power. And so we just see this reflected everywhere. And we'd all agree, when we see a villain, uh, we can spot a villain a mile away because of their proud, arrogant um, sort of uh, behavior. Okay, we just seem to have these um, stereotypes that are, that are built in. So the conscience. Uh, the uh, definition here, the ability or a faculty that distinguishes whether one's actions are right or wrong. And I really like the definition uh, Bernard Taylor here at Loma Linda gave, which is the mind acting in judgment with the light of knowledge that it has. Now, none of us have a perfect conscience. Even though I listed all of those universally agreed things on, we would all disagree, I think, on, on certain areas. Okay, but... The mind acting in judgment with the light of knowledge that it has. That's the key thing. Are we following the light of knowledge that we do have? I found this uh, interesting here where Paul in 1 Corinthians would say, The one thing required of such servants is that they be faithful to their master. Now, I am not at all concerned about being judged by you or by any human standard. I don't even pass judgment on myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not prove that I am really innocent. Isn't that interesting? My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove that I'm completely innocent in every matter. So the Lord is the one who passes judgment on me, so you should not pass judgment on anyone before the right time comes. Final judgment what must wait until the Lord comes. And notice, He will bring light to light the dark secrets and expose the hidden purposes of people's minds. So there will be a time when reality and truth absolute truth will become crystal clear. And then in any way that we are out of harmony uh, with that, it, it will become very clear. found that interesting. And Gandhi, I think speaking very much on this topic, would say happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Happiness is really when you follow your conscience, what you believe to be right. That the words you say, they're not deceptive, they're not distorted from what you really believe to be true. That your actions are perfectly in harmony with what your conscience tells you is really right and wrong. And when we live in that way, um, well, I think that is happiness. I know for me, just recently, I went through a very difficult situation. And the greatest stress was seeing to myself, I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing. I see perhaps um, there's something I'm not sure if, if this is correct, what I'm doing. That was the most distressing part of it. It was very hard to tell. Okay, so we just consider people who seem to have really followed their conscience all the way. And people like Martin Luther... Uh, certainly come to mind. Thank you, Martin Luther King. And he would say this about the conscience. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? 
And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe nor popular, but one must take it because one's conscience tells one that it is right. And of course this led him to really go all the way, as it so often does, with people like Gandhi and other great people uh, in Earth's history, to what would seem to be an extreme position, but it was the, the right position. So, Proverbs here. This verse, I think, is very telling. Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. And it is very dangerous not to follow your conscience. Okay, because every time you do that, it, uh, it actually has a destructive effect. Um, and I think this is kind of getting to Jesus' words here. When he said, the eyes are like a lamp for the body. What do the eyes do? You, you perceive, you take in information in the eyes. If your eyes are sound, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are no good, your body will be in darkness. So, if the light in you is darkness, how terribly dark it will be. And he's saying this in the context of a very self-righteous people who thought he had a demon, the light that they had was darkness. How they perceived the real light. Jesus came into the world as the light of the world. They perceived that to be darkness. The light that they thought was real light was darkness. So how we perceive things, our conscience, our mind can become warped to the point that when we look at Jesus, we would actually say, you are of the devil and vice versa. Okay, we're actually capable of that. Let's give some examples on the other side. Uh, Eichmann here, who was uh, responsible for the extermination of countless hundreds of thousands of Jews in the Holocaust. It was very interesting when he was put on trial. This was his defense. Uh, during the whole trial, Eichmann insisted that he was only following orders. He explicitly declared that he had abdicated his conscience. Eichmann claimed that he was merely a transmitter with very little power. He testified that I never did anything, great or small, without obtaining in advance express instructions from Adolf Hitler or any of my superiors. And people have debated whether this was just an argument or whether he really uh, believed that. But if this, is, if this is true, again, every step further away, doing this that is wrong against your conscience, becomes easier to go further and even further and even further to the point that uh, we are uh, capable of uh, great atrocities. Of course, in modern times, what about these people that flew planes into the World Trade Center? Were they following their conscience? Did they think a great reward would be theirs? Did they really believe they were doing the right thing? Um, yes, they did. And this wouldn't just, uh, uh, we give lots of Christian examples. Of course, the people that um, strangled Tyndale for the audacity of translating the Bible into English and then burned him. Um, did they think they were doing the right thing? Did they say they were followers of Jesus? Um, yes. Would Jesus in any way seem to condone strangling and burning to death people who disagree with you. Do we see that at all in the life and teachings of Jesus? Um, so, uh, again, things were completely warped and can be even for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Very dangerous to uh, reject your conscience. And... Uh, um, this quote here, I think, is right on. Because how do we perceive sin? What's so bad about sin? What's so bad about rebelling and not trusting God? We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. 
Now, isn't that what's often felt? What's so bad about sin? Well, what's so bad about sin is God will punish you for sin. It's not that sin is that bad, it's just that God will punish. Is that how we perceive sin? Is sin self-destructive? Or does sin have to be punished externally in some way? But according to this quote, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Kind of like would it make sense to say we are not to regard dentists as punishing patients who don't brush their teeth. If you don't brush your teeth, does the dentist you know, need to sneak into your bedroom and do something to you in the middle of the night, insert cavities? Or does not brushing your teeth lead to cavities? Okay, and I think it, it really applies in the same way. When we're in a rebellious, distrustful relationship with God, that is self-destructive. And we just, in all of those examples like I just gave, God did not do something to the brain of those people that burned Tyndale. Okay, they did that to themselves. Okay, so coming back to the New Testament, and don't you love how this verse opens up? You want a good definition of the judgment? Here it is. Jesus' own words. This is how the judgment works. Well, that's pretty clear. How does the judgment work? The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Those who do evil things hate the light and will not come to the light because they do not want their evil deeds to be shown up. But those who do what is true come to the light in order that the light may show that what they did was in obedience to God. So how does the judgment work? Uh, Jesus came as the light of the world really to give us the freedom to make a choice, to choose for the light. But what happened? He came to his own people who were doing all those things and they, they were totally turned off by a humble God, a kind God, a God who forgives a woman caught in adultery, a God who would choose fishermen to be his disciples, a God that would hang out with tax collectors and the riffraff of society. That was not their picture of God. That was offensive. And they hated him. Okay, so, but if we are attracted to a God like Jesus, we come into the light. We begin to trust him. We begin to change in that process. And so this verse, and now this is going to get us into Richard Hayes a little bit into uh, uh, what he says about the writings of Paul. This is a very challenging passage here in Romans 2. And for those of you that were here last year, we spent a long time talking about this. But I think it gets back to the same thing C.S. Lewis was talking about. In all cultures, we seem to see this uh, internal sense of right and wrong. And Paul would say the Gentiles do not have the law. But whenever they do by instinct what the law commands... Now, what does all law command? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, when by instinct they do what the law commands, they are their own law, even though they do not have the law. Their conduct shows that what the law commands is written on their hearts, their minds. Their consciences also show that this is true, since sometimes their thoughts accuse them and sometimes defend them. Isn't that a good process, a good description of the conscience? Our, as we just do things day to day, 
aren't we continually judging, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, judging other people, but am I, what I am doing in this situation, is it right, is it wrong? There's this uh, kind of uh, internal thing that's continually going on here. But their consciences show this is true since their thoughts sometimes accuse them and sometimes defend them. And so, according to the good news, I want to try to, how do we tie this in? According to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on that day when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. Now, what does the good news have to do with this whole passage here that would seem to be describing people who do not know the law or Christ, but yet somehow God has spoken to their hearts and minds and they are following the law, though they don't have the law. And then Paul would say, but according to the good news, that's how it's going to be in the end. Well, this would depend on how we define the good news. What is the good news? And uh, this is what I think uh, Dr. Hayes is going to talk about here next week. Paul talks a lot about the good news. Here is really his whole thesis for the book of Romans. This key passage in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he would say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. And he would go on to define it. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. What does that mean? Well, that's a Latin word. But could we say the trustworthiness, the goodness, the character, the faithfulness, um, the gospel. This verse can be translated, as um, though most have said rather awkwardly, that the good news is that we can be saved. But it really, literally reads that the good news is about God. It is about His righteousness, His goodness. So it's great good news that we can be saved, but maybe a small g. The ultimate good news, though, is that God is just as Jesus revealed Him to be, supremely righteous, supremely good, supremely trustworthy. And that good news is ultimately what matters more than anything else. All right, so when we think about our picture, and we have maybe a distorted conscience, a distorted picture of reality, of things, and we walk around with everything kind of fuzzy. Now we're completely unaware that our vision is fuzzy. We think it's perfect. looks fine to us. Okay, but the reality is it's, it's very distorted. How do we bring our mind back into harmony with God and into harmony with truth? And the ultimate way that that happens is in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus came again as the light of the world to give us a choice, to help us to see and to choose in a different way. And even the words like uh, repentance, which we might uh, traditionally associate or describe it in a certain way. What does it mean, repentance? Jesus came, began to preach, to say repent, for the kingdom of, hand, uh, of heaven is at hand. But the word uh, repentance is metanoia. Noia is brain. Uh, meta is to change, like metamorphosis. And so what it really means to repent, and as many of the newer uh, translations um, are uh, translating this verse, is Jesus saying, turn to God, and notice, change the way you think and act. Okay, Jesus came to change our picture of God. He came to change the way we think about God. And of course, that ultimately leads to a change in action. All right, so uh, this is the ultimate refining influence, I think, on the minds of each one of us is Jesus Christ. Now, just a last point here, if I can bring up very quickly, because I think it ties in about the sacrificial system. Uh, now, why in the world here? And some would debate, well, did they really sacrifice um, animals back in this time? 
And um, I know that's a, a debate, but uh, maybe uh, as some evidence here, we know that God made clothes out of skins. Interesting why he did that. Did he just create the skins? Um, well, it's kind of like uh, some of these stories. Remember when Jesus made fish for his disciples um, after the resurrection? And do we imagine he just created it, and there are the fish on the fire, or was he out there with a fishing line for three or four hours catching the fish? Well, certainly God would be capable of just creating the skins, or was there a sacrifice involved? Well, but then, of course, we read on with Cain and Abel, and we know that Abel brought a lamb, Cain brought fruit, so it would seem they were sacrificing back in this time. Okay, what's the point of the sacrificial system? Um, and I think it, I mean, just imagine here, if you're Adam... And God tells you, hey, you know, describes the process. And you have to kill um, a lamb. Can you imagine? What's the purpose? Do you think, um, did Adam have a nice big uh, sword and he could just get it over with uh, quickly? How do you think he killed it? It would be the most disgusting thing you can imagine. Okay, and I think that was the whole point. It was supposed to be disgusting. And why was it supposed to be disgusting? Well, we kind of get back here into this picture of things. I like Paul's description. What was the purpose of the sacrifices? As it is, however, as is Hebrews 10.3, the sacrifices serve year after year to remind people of their sins. Because of this separation between God and the human race, uh, the innocent will suffer. There will be death. Sin has a horrible natural consequence. And I think they were to understand, hey, following that road, it's awful, it's horrible, it's disgusting. And the whole record of the human race is a rather disgusting history. I think you'd have to say it's terrible. Okay, and that was the point. So I think here, if we come back to this ocean here, that um, God creating this enmity, this separation, this giving us a, a choice and greater clarity of understanding the two sides, and even something like the sacrificial system, where perhaps they could see with even greater clarity that Satan's side leads to horrible, horrible, destructive consequences that... Um, again, maybe gave them a better opportunity to make a choice between the two sides. All right, so next time I think we will get to the flood and uh, we'll discuss uh, perhaps what went on there. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, even in these first few chapters of Genesis we see you reaching out in perhaps ways that might seem uh, strange to us, but yet you met those people where they were, you reached them with um, words they could understand, actions that uh, met them in their rebellion. Um, we know that you do the same for us. So thank you for always condescending to meet us in our needs. Help us to come closer to the truth about who you are. Amen.